Welcome to another exciting episode of The NIDS View, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we discuss and analyze a recent topic and provide insight into how it affects our national deterrence. We hope you enjoy this show. Welcome back to another great episode of the NIDS View, where we talk about the news and events of the day. And we oftentimes discuss great articles that have come out over the last week or so. And that's what we wanted to do today. So we're going to talk about why a nuclear weapons ban would threaten not save humanity is an article that Zach Callenborn, who of course is one of the is a senior fellow here at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, and he's here with us today to discuss this. And of course, we're also joined by Curtis McGiffin and Jane Petrosky. So, Zach, thanks for joining us to talk about your great article. Yeah, thanks for having me, Curtis. I, I think you wanted to say something real quick, or or no, we we want to go straight so to Zach. Yeah. Okay, so Zach, tell us about your article. <laughs> Yeah, so basically the argument I make is that, you know, nuclear ban advocates have been saying for a long time that the reason we need to get rid of the arsenal is because nuclear weapons pose such a significant existential threat. And I think there's some merits to that. You know, certainly we've seen modeling suggesting that, you know, when we have massive nuclear confrontation, you potentially create nuclear winter type scenarios where there's so much soot that's cu- uh, pushed up in the stratosphere that it causes global cooling and sort of mass um, uh, famine and damage. The problem, though, that I see in the gist of the argument um, is that and we have to consider some of these existential risks more broadly because it's not just nuclear weapons. There's also climate change, planet killer asteroids, artificial intelligence, all in other scenarios that all threaten humanity. And the problem is that if we get rid of nuclear weapons, we also potentially remove the cap that they place on great power war. You know, we know that, you know, if we look at potential an existential conflict between the United States and China where we're fighting for survival, if, you know, one or both of us are, you know, at death's door where we're looking at state collapse or something like that, the nuclear weapons are going to be coming out and probably way below then. So you basically have that cap there. And that's important because great power war potentially uh, drastically increases the existential risks um, that humanity faces. And and I argue there's essentially four mechanisms for this. Um, So first, you know, the threat to the international cooperative system, you know, the United Nations, NATO, um, all the International Monetary Fund, the International, the, um, international uh, Panel on uh, Climate to Address Climate Change, all of these things were built up post-World War II. And so if we you know, take off China and the United States and potentially you know, many of our allies, uh, that potentially creates significant damage to the global cooperative system necessary to address all sorts of um, existential risks. Um, the second issue is that some of the infrastructure that is needed to to mitigate and reduce these challenges um, may very well be targeted in a great power war. We know that uh, NASA launched its uh, asteroid redirection test from a military base uh, in Santa Barbara, California. That same military base is also open, open to a critical space operations command center that's used for tactical uh, management of space, uh, space forces. So, you know, if we have a fight between China and the United States, we could reasonably expect that same facility to come under attack and be damaged potentially quite significantly. 
Um, and the other issue is, you know, the general loss of state capacity and the amount of uh, money that would come to deal with uh, great power war. You know, what we saw in World War II is we saw massive state collapse. We saw potentially, you know, billions going into rebuilding Europe, rebuilding Japan, all of this. So when that's happening, like, are we really going to be focused on, say, you know, biological security, making sure some significant biological lab is appropriately secure from, say, you know, accidental release, terrorism, any number of things. Um, and of course, that goes across the board. Um, and then finally, you know, if you have great power war, you're potentially accelerating uh, many of these same existential risk scenarios. So we can imagine uh, a, a catastrophic World War III supercharging artificial intelligence research leading to, you know, artificial superintelligence, stuff like that, as well as, say, enhancing uh, genetic engineering to support, you know, soldiers' uh, effectiveness, um, which in turn creates risk through biological, uh, enhancing biological weapons, since many of that capability is dual use. So you potentially enhance a number of scenarios. So, you know, despite activists' claims that nuclear weapons will, you know, are this grave existential risk, I think actually getting rid of them um, is a problem in and of itself. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and, you know, as I read your article, I thought, you know, these are new sort of innovative arguments. You know, I think about great power conflict and the loss and destruction that that would cause. But the this idea, and it was sort of the, the where I focus, was this idea that you're going to take your eye off the ball on these other potential risk areas. That That's sort of where I was like, okay, wait a second. This, this is sort of the most important thing here. Now, Curtis, Jim, what was your take on it? And did you guys have questions for Zach, want him to expand on, on his points? Well, I would say this, and uh, Zach, thanks for being on the show and, and for, thanks for being in the National Institute for Deterrence Studies and for all the work you do um, in this area and in your other areas of uh, drones and so forth. Uh, you are an asset, I believe, to this nation with your mind and creativity. Um, I found the article extremely interesting, and um, you know, my, my thoughts are uh, is that we tend to sort of lump uh, you didn't do this, uh, but but I mean the 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 anti nuclear community tends to sort of say if we get rid of nuclear weapons, we'll solve our war problems, we'll solve our disagreements, and these two are completely disconnected. Um, I, with regard to you know just because you get rid of nuclear weapons doesn't mean everybody's going to love each other uh, and get along. Uh, and so what we tend to see then is. Um, as you point out, rightly so, the, the ability to mitigate potential uh, large-scale war is eliminated, but not the reasons why large-scale war might occur. Uh, and so we sort of remove that speed bump, if you will. That, that, that fear of escalation, that fear of that massive exchange that would create all of these nasty things that everybody talks about is exactly what keeps the peace. Uh, and so, so let me ask you this, in your innovative mind, let's assume we can get there. Let's assume that the world can get to disarmament. What replaces nuclear weapons? What will be, because I'm going to say that we're not going to solve the war puzzle. We're not going to solve the things that get, that make nations disagree with one another. So what replaces the nuclear weapon as the capability or uh, to, to enforce and protect national interests. Soccer games. That's my answer. I wasn't asking you, soccer. Jim. Oh, I'm sorry. That's why you didn't want to ask me. Go ahead. 
Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, and the answer is I don't know because I think there aren't, at least at the moment, any clear solutions. You know, if we immediate uh, jump to mind is you know biological weapons. Uh, you know, nineteen sixties we consider we're evaluating and considering them as strategic deterrents. Um, and some parts of the Pentagon did believe that they would might be effective. Um, but ultimately, we concluded that they wouldn't be for a number of reasons. Namely, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty when you're spreading disease on how quickly the harms will refl- uh, will you know uh, will will manifest. You know, whether they'll manifest as well as, you know, obviously we've seen COVID, you know, biological weapons spread everywhere, so it potentially hits us back. So it, it is potentially a strategic deterrent, but it's not a very effective and useful one. And, you know, personally, I think trading, getting rid of nuclear weapons for, you know, having us all protected through biological warfare is uh, maybe uh, even more scary. <laughs> um, than the yeah. um, but, you know, I, I think the reality is, like, there really aren't any. And we know, of course, that um, plenty of people throughout history have been incredibly horrible and been willing to do do, uh, you know, terrible things, willing to invade countries. You have people like, you know, Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, who've done terrible things, and certainly got any number of serial killers, sociopaths, and all those fun sort of things. So, you know, even if 99.9% of the world, you know, comes to agreement and we all sing Kumbaya and, you know, go frolicking through the fields, holding hands and hanging out, um, the possibility of uh, emergence of someone else uh, that's willing to destroy that for either whatever idiosyncratic uh, reasons that they have, maybe they just want to see the world born, is always possible. So I think the reality is if we don't get rid of, if we get rid of nuclear weapons, it really isn't an alternative. You know, the best you got is relying on just overmatch and conventional deterrence. Um, but as we've you know seen in plenty of conflicts, like conventional deterrence can be useful, absolutely. But uh, you know when you're looking at peer-to-peer conflict where that conventional levels are pretty close, um, that's not really a reliable deterrent, I think. So, uh, let me just follow up here, and then I'll let Jim have his turn. So I would argue if we look back in history, we've seen what the, the failure of conventional deterrence means. Uh, it led to World War One, World War Two, just for just two easy examples. Uh, and I like to use, uh, I like to point to everybody who's listening, uh, the number 94. Uh, 94 is the percentage is of lives not lost between 1946 and today in the decrease of, of great power war, specifically conventional war. Uh, when we think about the millions and millions and millions, 87 million-ish over the World War II time frame who are killed in conventional wars, uh, and we think about all of the death and destruction, both pre-1945 uh, and post-1945, uh, all of those deaths have been created not by nuclear weapons, uh, but by conventional weapons. Um, I can't, uh, you know, since 1945, I believe the answer is zero in the number of people who have been killed by a nuclear weapon in anger. Uh, and I think it's a testament to just how uh, reliable they are in in keeping small wars, small. Yeah, I would say, yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's one of the things that I found really interesting about, uh, you know, there's a number of uh, articles that uh, responded to mine. Uh, One of them was, uh, interestingly, essentially making the point that although they were disagreeing with me about, you know, the stability of deterrence long term, um, they pointed out basically exactly what you said, noting, you know, there has been a fundamental difference um, in the world since uh, 1945, in which, you know, we've had massive amounts of conflict for throughout all of human history. But in the last few decades, 
not so much. That's, you know, whether the next couple centuries will look exactly the same, I don't know. I think there is fair doubt about that. But I think there's also no doubt that, you know, nuclear weapons have drastically made our world more peaceful. Yeah. Uh, first first of all, I want to apologize to the audience. I know I jumped in on Curtis's answer, but I was thinking about, you know, what was going to be my follow-up uh, sort of question and interaction <laughs> with Zach. And I'm glad to have Zach on. Thank you for coming on. It's nice to have an intellectual giant to talk to on this uh, podcast. I'm just picking on my other guys here. But what I, what I want to say is hey. uh, I, I want to take a different view on this because I had a different take from your article when I read this. And it's because in the vernacular of nearly every important item in our country and, and sort of worldwide, everything's brought up as an existential threat. You know, COVID's an existential threat. You know, nuclear weapons are an existential threat. All these things are existential threats. But when you look at this from the anti-nuclear standpoint here, the reason you can argue the existential threats that people have, and I'd be curious what the answer here is, I, I know what my answer is, is that people say nuclear weapon, a nuclear exchange between new, two nuclear powers is an existential threat. Why? Well, we've never had one. And we know we've had conventional wars, and we, as a humanity, survived. But we'll never survive a nuclear exchange. Therefore, it's an existential threat. And then you get to make the argument we need to get rid of them because there's an existential threat. And then people, you know, my, my concern is then, what's the next existential threat? AI. And then conventional weapons. Then use of space. Then, you know, arms and bullets. And then we get down to the point that wars, because you will never get rid of the war problem, people will always have conflict. People are people. And it'll have conflict. And so to Curtis's end, then you get all the way down to the point where the idealist says, we'll, we'll solve conflicts by playing a game. And whoever loses the game gives up their country. And then you play the game. And whoever loses says, I'm not giving up my country. And they say, yes, you are. You <laughs> lost the game. And you say, well, make me. And then you get into a fighting match. And then you build bullets. And then you build howitzers. And then you build tanks. And then you build space assets. And then you build nuclear weapons. And we're back to where we are. I I would be interested in your thoughts on those two pieces. One, the sort of the, the growth and, and, and expansion. But the other thing is about this unknown, which presents to us a, an existential threat, apparently. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So um, first of all, I would say I completely agree about um, sort of the loose way that folks use um, existential threat, where, you know, potentially everything is like, you know, we talk about like, for a while after 9-11, we talk about terrorism as an existential threat. And like, terrorism is absolutely concerning, don't get me wrong. And obviously, thousands of people dying is horrible. Like, you obviously don't want that. But is that actually a threat to our survival as our country? Um, you know, so I do think folks do play uh, fast and loose. I think, though, that there are at least some fair arguments um, in the nuclear case where for that potential existential risk. Um, I think there's a lot of unknowns about it. But uh, the argument that a number of uh, uh, scientific folks have made is essentially that the issue with nuclear weapons is that you have such high heat and such explosive power that you potentially create uh, massive fires in particularly in like civilian areas and you potentially ignite on fire things that normally wouldn't be because of the much higher temperatures and energies that you're talking about. Um, so you end up potentially creating things like, you know, firestorm, massive firestorms, particularly if you start hitting like oil fields or refineries and stuff like that. Um, and that creates so much soot that gets knocked up into the atmosphere that it, you know, basically blocks out the sunlight, causes a massive global 
global cooling and creates um, all sorts of uh, harm to our ability to grow food and stuff like that. Um, and there is some research supporting that, particularly that um, if we do have this, these huge amounts of black carbon in the atmosphere, it could create that potential global cooling. Um, the big uncertainty, though, is um, to the, what degree that carbon actually goes up into the atmosphere because we haven't had a global war. We don't really know. And, you know, one of the things that we see is that um, there's a, a, the assumptions that scientists are making when they talk about those releases and the harm um, – Changes to those assumptions drastically change the conclusions about the amount of cooling that you get, where um, even as well as like the effects from that cooling, where even simple effects like um, like targeting decisions about you know to what degree are you looking at counterforce or countervalue targeting, whether they're in cities or whether then you know they're outside of that, that can drastically change assessments of the amount of um, soot that uh, that you generate, and therefore the amount of existential harm. So um, and others have also raised a number of other issues, like you know that there's potential political bias. There's like only a handful of folks who've really you know gotten into this nuclear winter scenario, um, you know, so that. If they're make if there's systematic mistakes in their thinking, either just their own thinking or due to political reasons or any other types of reasons, you know that's potentially baked in. So I think there's reasons to be doubtful, but I also think there is at least it is based on enough credible science that I think it's worth worry. Uh, but the solution to that isn't to get rid of all nuclear weapons. It's you know better understand, uh, make sure that they're safe and reliable, make sure that we're not making mistakes. Um, you know and potentially reduce to to the extent that we can, um, at least below some of those existential threats. But that will also require us better understanding, you know, at what point do those existential threats, what are those assumptions? What are those, what are those assumptions valid? Um, what can we do to reduce them and change them? There's, you know, a bazillion variables that go beyond just let's get rid of nukes. Yeah. For one of the things, though, that I would sort of offer a correction to uh, Jim's last comment is that, you know, there's a this sort of, you know, war will always be. But for many within the arms control community who accept, you know, when we talk about realist versus idealist perspectives, they fundamentally reject the idea that there is a set human nature and that set human nature is fundamentally, you know, like the Judeo-Christian ethic where people are flawed, you know, they're wicked and sinful. They reject that. And so the idea that there will always be conflict is one that, you know, my dear friends in the arms control community, many would reject and would say that's simply not true, that if you develop the right institutions and then those right institutions teach the right values and morals, that you can eliminate conflict. And so part of their sort of optimism is in the belief that those things are all possible. You know, it's this very Kantian view of humanity and, you know, this optimism that we can do. We can make the world what we want it to be. And so if you hold those views, then then you can fundamentally reject this this concept of, hey, you know, if we get rid of nuclear weapons, you know, we'll go back to fighting great power wars. Because they would say, hey, listen, you know, we'll build the institutions like the U.N. was supposed to be or others. And we'll, you know, we'll teach the right values because we'll have social democracy and the social democracies will control K through 12 education. And, you know, we'll we'll instill the values that we will make people pacific. And therefore, we won't have global war and great power war. That That's kind of their argument now. Whether I don't necessarily agree with it, but I at least want to represent their values as they actually are. 
So, yeah. that, you know, that's their challenge to you, Jim, or Curtis, or even you, Zach. Yeah, well, I, I would, Adam, I'd just add to that that I believe that everybody in the world needs to follow some single person's view and then follow on with that and agree with it. And I'll take that role as long as you don't do the same thing to me that every other person has tried to take over the world and control it would do. Because that seems to be what has happened in the past. That anyone that's taken over, it's just human humans have human nature. So you go to the, you know, again, the Judeo Christian view. No, they don't. Uh, they don't have human nature. That's the argument. Again, you use the Judeo-Christian viewpoint, which is that you know pe- people do not, you know, are, are selfish and jealous, et cetera, et cetera. And those aspects are what cause the conflict. And if you don't agree with me, Adam, that's your problem, not mine. There. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, Zach. So one of the things that I thought was important is you pointed out second and third order effects. And that's really, I think, the the best aspect of it. As you've gotten pushback from people, do they, you know, this is what's really hard to control. And when, when the U.S. fights, you know, we've spent our careers, we're all military guys. And that's one of the things that has always been, has always plagued the U.S. is that we we don't foresee the second and third order effects that come from our actions, particularly in a conflict, right? Iraq was that, Afghanistan was that. And so there's a second and third order effects that would come from from elimination of nuclear weapons. Do the arms control advocates or those who push back against you have good explanations for how they might control those second order effects to stop all of the things that you have pointed out or that you didn't even see that could happen? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And no doubt there would be some very significant second order and third order effects, particularly through the conflict, uh, through like, you know, broader conventional conflict and what that means. Um, Personally, I haven't seen any particularly good um, answers to that, um, obviously. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, I probably would be more sympathetic to the arguments. Um, but, I, like, the answer I think that uh, some of the rebuttals uh, focused on was more of, like, how the movement to nuclear abolition would itself um, be a source of global cooperation, where in order to basically get to abolition, you need states to work together and cooperate. You know, you need to build and strengthen those, you know, the United Nations and other um, international uh, organizations and systems. And so so they essentially argue that it's almost a prerequisite for getting abolition, that you basically kind of need to solve war before you kind of get there to some extent. I might be over-exaggerating their particular points of view, but that's how, I, how I, at least I interpreted um, the argument there. You know, and I think that gets at the, the larger point there about basically you create the institutions and the ties where, you know, we rely on other means. And certainly there are theoretical arguments, uh, on, you know, on the IR liberalism side that uh, try to support that. There are, you know, complex economic and social interdependence through international organizations and stuff like that, that you can get, um, uh, you can potentially reduce or potentially eliminate a lot of conflict that way. And so you sort of prevent that. Um, I think it's a, it's a uh, there are some reasonable arguments for that. And I think, you know, certainly our experience within like what we've seen in Europe has at least supported that, uh, you know, those ties can be really useful in the long term, uh, where, you know, Germany and France were fighting for centuries all the time. Um, now it's almost impossible to imagine. So I, I think there is a argument there that, like, at least it reduces uh, conventional conflict. But uh, the notion that it eliminates it, I find uh, very uh, unpersuasive, you know, sort of as I mentioned before, you know, there's always going to be some folks who uh, have 
have some sort of desires to overthrow uh, or create systems. And that's just based in, you know, I think human nature. Or perhaps more accurate, perhaps more precisely, are our experiences that we have um, as humans and how they shape our worldviews and our values um, in a myriad of different ways. You know, it's you can imagine, say, some kid who grows up in a broken home, parents are drug addicts, he doesn't have stable, you know, familial ties, uh, you know, goes through a really rough childhood, maybe deals with drugs, alcohol, other sorts of abuse, maybe has, you know, depression, maybe there's even some sociopathy there. Um, how that person comes up and what their worldview is going to look like, it may be a very um, Habesian, violent worldview, where that's kind of what you need, because he grew up in a really tough environment, and that sort of shaped how he understands. And it may lead him to be very cynical about humanity and more willing to behave, say, aggressively if this person becomes in a position of decision-making or influence um, based on that uh, childhood experience. And like, it's not like we're going to eliminate everyone going through a crappy childhood. That's not a reasonable thing anyone could ever expect, even if we elect Jim president of the world, which I favor, of course. But, you know, even if we I do mean- that... Yeah, but I'm sorry, but I'm not. I don't feel confident that you can eliminate uh, every kid everywhere, not never having a bad childhood, or you know, going through you know, dealing with child abuse or sexual abuse, or you know, any of the horrible things that happen to people all the time um, that lead to negative worldviews. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that to say, yes, uh, I think there's responses to it um, based on international organizations, but I'm of course not remotely optimistic about them being successful. Well, let me let me add to the, the geopolitical idealism issue here. And then uh, let me point out that to your point on uh, France and Germany, one of the reasons why they get along so well is France has its nuclear weapons now after being invaded by Germany twice in the 20th century. So they can, they can, uh, they can, they can get along a little bit better, right? So, um, you know, this, this, this idea uh, in the geopolitical idealism that if we, through the elimination of nuclear weapons, the world will come together is, has to assume that nation states are going to be willing to to give up their uh, their 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 right to self determine and ensure sovereignty and their own securities, and they're going to have to give that up to something else, right? To somebody else, if they're going to surrender their nuclear weapons, for example, who will be the omnipotent power that will ensure that those nuclear weapons are collected um, and eliminated, um, and and then what happens after that? And this is the realist paradox, right? So the realist paradox says that in order to get to that world, you've got to con- realists are not going to give up their weapons until there is some sort of international cooperation that has not ever existed and does not currently exist today. And so you really have a geopolitical chicken and egg problem here when you come to the idea of of disarmament. And I would again argue that disarmament does not solve the fundamental problem of conflict. All it does is change the way conflict is going to be carried on or or not deterred, right? And so uh, I think this is interesting in that sense. And when we look at the article, uh, one of the rebuttal articles that came out um, by, uh, I'll just note a couple of the authors here, um, Ivana Hughes and Xanthi Hall, Ira Helfen, and Mays uh, Smithwick. Uh, they note in their article um, that you know deterrence is based on uh, on decision makers always behaving rationally, and then they go on to say, but individual leaders do not always behave rationally. Okay, and I would argue, show me one that hasn't, 
behaved rationally. Rationally, people calculate. They may not be reasonable. They may not be deciding on issues the way you would, but that doesn't make them irrational uh, in some way. But they later go on to say that the elimination of all nuclear weapons and a concurrent international system of verification and monitoring would result in a far better scenario than where we find ourselves today. Really no explanation as to how we get there. But even a hypothetical situation in which a nation cheats and a few weapons following their elimination began to exist, that would be far less dangerous than the world we have today. Well, I, why would that be? I thought that we didn't have rational decision makers, right? So I would wa- not want only a few weapons left in the world because someone cheated uh, on, a, on an agreement and verification was not complete. And then all of a sudden they become the most powerful nation in the world in which they can coerce anybody who is unwilling to, to be on the receiving end of a nuclear weapon. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, on their counter argument? Yeah. I mean, I, I think they make a fair point that, um, and I agree with you that technically it's not that it's a matter of rationality. It's more of a reasonableness. You know, I think most people are rational in, in most cases. Um, you know, I, I think they do make a fair point, though, that um, there is always that potential for miscalculation, misunderstanding. And in my view, it's less that people are always going to be or potentially irrational, but it's, you know, people make mistakes. We, you know, are, have to make decisions on incomplete information. Um, and so there's that potential there. And certainly, you know, in a high-stress crisis scenario, especially if, you know, other things are going on in one's life, um, you know, you imagine, okay, the nuclear crisis uh, starts. And but the day before, you know, uh, the first lady asked for a divorce because, you know, the president was, I don't know, being pig or whatever, you know, pick whatever sin you want. But, you know, going through other things at the same time, like, how is that going to affect decision making? I don't you know, I have no doubt that, you know, the president would still be trying to make the best possible decision as they can. But uh, things that go through our lives can affect that. um, Well, uh, you know, artificial intelligence isn't affected by emotions. Right. So maybe maybe that's the answer. (laughs) Uh, I don't know about that. That's a larger discussion. Well, then we have to deal with the foibles of humankind, right? And and so this is why you have to be able to, you know, you can dialogue about these things and you can communicate to one another. Um, But I generally believe that even folks like Kim Jong-un are fairly responsible in how they posture their systems. They may not be reasonable. Mm -hmm. Okay. I give you that. But... But the fact that they're not sh- shooting them off and, and, and destroying, uh, you know, their, na- their neighbors um, is, um, uh, you know, in, in real actual combat with real actual warheads, that's, a, you know, that I think is a, is a success to deterrence because in the end, the ultimate goal by that rational actor is what's most important to them. And it isn't being, el- you know, eliminated and erased off the face of the earth by a response. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Oh, did you want to jump in there, Jim? Uh, no, uh, not on this topic. I wanted to flip a little bit of this argument upside down uh, for the fun of it before we end a broadcast here. And I'll okay. let you have the last word, Zach, unless Adam jumps me yeah. on this. But the, it fits in well with what Curtis is saying. And that is I deliberately set up the existential argument up front. So let me flip it over. Since nuclear weapons pose an existential threat, or at least as, as appears that they do, and perceived as such, isn't that what really helps to put the governor on and regulate their use? That no one wants to get into the position where we all disappear? 
that that in and of itself is the conundrum that I see in the end. It fits into what Curtis just argued. It brings the cooler minds. Yep. Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, in that crisis scenario, that the fact that in that awareness of that, you know, might very well, you know, put that cooling, cooling down there and say, hey, oh, maybe I should back off here. And like, even if they're not necessarily, even if someone isn't necessarily uh, operating rational, you know, fear is not a rational thing. That's, it's operating in a much more like deeper level where like you be terrified of, you know, what happens if not only do I launch this nuke and cause the ha- uh, harm to, you know, another state, but what happens if they hit back? Because it's not just about the survival of the state and, the, and that system. It's also the survival of your family, your friends, your, you know, the coffee place that you go on the weekends and, you know, chill out and hang out. Like, it, that's getting destroyed, too. Um, you know, and, and I do think there there is that psychological element there of folks, you know, pushing back and realizing, like, oh, my God, this would be incredibly terrifying, which, you know, may almost... almost serve as any rational check on the on the rationality to some extent and uh, move towards caution uh, when, when we're uh, talking about nuclear weapons. So this goes to the strange love uh, definition, right? It, it is the fear to attack. Okay, well, unfortunately, we are out of time. So, Zach, thanks for joining yeah, thanks us for being for, here, and Zach. discussing that article. It was a great piece. I enjoyed it. And you, you brought up some arguments that I had not given much thought to. So thanks for writing yeah. it and and coming on to the NIDS view to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Glad to be a part of NIDS. Thank you, Zach, for all you do. And thanks to you, the listeners, of course, uh, for joining us on this episode of the NIDS view. And as always, we want to remind you real quick to think deterrence. I want people to remember, hey, come look us up on Twitter, uh, Twitter X, whatever the act formerly known as Twitter. Uh, Our handle is uh, at think deterrence. Come out and check us out. All right. Thanks, Curtis. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the NIDS View. This show is produced under the NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative The NIDS View.